All right, 2 Samuel chapter 3, 2 Samuel 3. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 24 of one of David's last encounters with King Saul, and David, in that encounter, made a promise to Saul that he would not harm Saul's family when he became king. That is normally how new kings handled their rivals. You wiped out anyone in their family so that no one could contest your reign. And when the civil war broke out between David and the other tribes led by Ishbosheth, Saul's remaining son, David had every intention of keeping that promise. And as such, David never goes on the offensive against Saul's family. And thus, after two years of war, when Abner offers to bring all Israel to David's side, David welcomes Abner like an honored guest. But even though David keeps his promise, the war continues because someone else takes matters into their own hands. So chapter 3, it says in verse 1, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. It says here, now there was long war. It means an extended or protracted war. It went longer than it needed to between the house of Saul and the house of David. And in the process of this lengthening war, David grew stronger. It means he grew in his status. His status became greater, and Saul's house's status became lesser. It shrank. And, and of course, then the question is, well, if, then why did the war extend And that's what this chapter is going to explain, that there were other circumstances that came into the situation that caused the war to extend. But before we get to those details, the writer gives us an update of what's going on with David personally during these two years of civil war. It says in verse 2, and unto David were sons born in Hebron. Now that sounds like good news, right? David's a dad. He's going to finally be able to have a family, right? Eh, Not so much. When it says, and David had sons and only two years have gone by, unless those are twin sons, it implies multiple children in the, you know, from different mamas. And, uh, and so this is not a good thing that's going on here. And so we're going to get a long list. It says, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. We already knew about her. His second son was Chileab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. We knew about her. And then his third son was Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Whoa, whoa, where did she come from? I mean, David's already got, he already knew he had two, and that was one too many. Where did she come from? Well, Geshur is a city-state on Israel's northeastern border, far to the northeast. It's very close, actually, to where Ishbosheth has set up his headquarters on the other side of Jordan. And so the idea here is that since David couldn't secure the allegiance of most of the other tribes, he went outside Israel to find allies. And treaties like this were usually secured through marriages, through intermarriage. And so that's where she comes from. We'll find out her son Absalom, of course, factors much later on into David's story. Verse 4, that's not it. And the fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth was Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth was Ithream by Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. We are not given the origins of these other three women. It's possible they were also political marriages. But however they have become part of David's 
harem, it doesn't matter. It's wrong. (laughs) God wasn't cool with two wives. He's certainly not any cooler with six. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, this isn't even something that's up for discussion. In Deuteronomy 17, God gives clear instructions that Israel's kings were not to operate like the kings of other nations. Like everything else in Israel, the kingship was supposed to be different in a way that pointed to the Lord. And so in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it gives instructions for the kings of Israel. It says, when you are come unto the land which the Lord your God gives you and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me, when that's your heart, guess what? You don't get to have a king like everybody else. You shall in any wise set him king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. One from among your brothers shall you set king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you, which is not your brother. Verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. And here it is. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart does not turn away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And then God gave some other positive stipulations that he was supposed to do these things. Don't do's. We read all those, and then there's some other things that he was supposed to do. Either way, this is not what David's done here. This directly disobeys God's commands for kings. And because David disobeyed God in this, there were great consequences. And so the writer is just letting us see the situation now so we understand when those consequences come into the story. Now, verse 6, we move on to the main thrust of this chapter, which is, why was this protracted? What happened? Well, verse 6 says, And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, it says that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So, Abner, we're going to see, is seeing that things are going poorly for his side of the war, and he is going to strengthen his position. While David is gaining status and Saul's side is shrinking in status, Abner openly cements his position as the power behind the throne by doing something. It mentions here that Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. Now, while Scripture doesn't mention Saul having other wives, we can know here now at least that he had one concubine. Now, it was very common for kings to have concubines back then. The size of a king's harem was usually considered a size of his strength and influence. But this is yet another failure on Saul's part, another attempt to create optics, that he's a, he's a big honcho, he's a, he's a king, king. Well, when Saul died, Saul's concubine, and if he had any other concubines, they would become Ishbosheths now that he was king. In fact, it was an extremely common practice to openly show that you had slept with your predecessor's harem as kind of a final triumph over them. So for Abner to engage with this concubine means that he is setting himself up as the inheritor of Saul's throne. Now, before we get to Ishbosheth's response to that, I do think it's important to point out that God takes the time to name not just this woman, Rizpah, but also to name the women in David's harem. These were real people 
with real families, with real hopes, and real dreams. And my guess would be that being passed around from man to man certainly wasn't part of that, nor was it part of God's intended plan for them. I bring this up because if you're married right now or if you're dating someone, that person is not your toy to play with. They are a person created in the image of God with a name that He knows and a life that He sees. And the Lord has serious words for those who take advantage of someone because of their weakened position. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 21 through 23, it doesn't refer to marriage or harems, but it says this. It says, I may have written down the wrong chapter here. That is not the verse I'm looking for. I love it when that happens. Okay. Well, so the verse I wanted to go to was a verse that talked about how if you take advantage of a foreigner or a widow or an orphan, and it mentions that if you do that and then they cry unto the Lord, the Lord says to them, don't you know that I will hear their cry? Don't you know that I will answer them speedily? And so the concept is, is that when someone's crying out to the Lord because, you know, they're in a weakened position or a vulnerable position and someone else takes advantage of him, that's a big deal. And, and so the Lord, he calls us to be different. It says true religion and undefiled, that which is pure, is to take care of orphans, to take care of widows, not to exploit them. And so, if you're in any type of a position like that, don't take advantage of those who are at your mercy. Now, back to 2 Samuel chapter 3 here. Abner may have propped up Ishbosheth as the ruler of Israel, but he saw Ishbosheth's inability to grow the kingdom as a sign that they would not win this conflict unless he stepped in. But when Ishbosheth finds out what he's done, he confronts his uncle. And so in the middle of verse 7, it says, And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore, why have you gone in unto my father's concubine? And then Abner was very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul your father, to his brethren and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hand of David that you would charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? When Saul is challenged by Ishbosheth here, he is, is the phrase here that he was very wroth, it means his anger burned toward Ishbosheth the words that he spoke. Well, what were the words that he spoke? Well, it mentions here, it, it says, am I a dog's head? He says that you would charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. That's the main question. He's got all sorts of flowery language in the middle of that, but that's the main question. Do you insult me? You know, the idea here that charge means to summon a formal gathering, it means to punish, to examine. The word fault there means guilt, sin, punishment. Whether Ishbosheth did this in front of other people or he did this privately one on one with Abner, we don't know. But this was a formal accusation, it was a formal examination, which what he's communicating is it will result in Abner's punishment if he's found guilty. And Abner 
he goes ballistic. Abner's words hit him like a fire and something snaps inside of him and he goes, am I a dog's head? I don't use that insult normally. However, that was a really bad one back then. That is that, I mean, it's one of the worst insults you could give back in that day. Is that what you're saying? Is he saying to me here? And then he speaks of the fact which against Judah do show kindness. I, I have stood up to David. I've stood up to that tribe that crowned him king when you should have been king in his mind. Of course, God had different plans. I have shown kindness this day to the house of Saul, your father, to his brethren and to his friends. I didn't deliver you under the hand of David. The word there for kindness is hesed. It's that word that's used of God's love for us, his loyal love, his unwavering devotion. Abner's reaction is, you you think I did this because I'm some petty thief? I'm the most loyal person to your family in the kingdom. I didn't do this because I want to kill you and take your place. I did this because I'm the only hope for us to win this thing. And when Ishbosheth does not respond the way Abner wants when he says this, Abner snaps even further. Verse 9, he says, So do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him. To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up uh, the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even unto Beersheba. Abner here makes a new oath with the consequence, you want to punish me? Well, I make an oath here. And if it's public, he's doing it in front of me. I make an oath here before God right now. Do whatever you want to me. But let God strike me dead, basically, is what he's saying. If I don't make David king over all Israel from top to bottom, I'm done with you, is what he's saying to Ishbosheth. This war's over. Abner promises to reunite the kingdom of, under David. And, and it's interesting because he promises to do so in obedience to God's promise to David. And he promises to do it with all of his energy so that there's not a single holdout in all of the promised land. Now, this interaction between Abner and Ishbosheth is sad on so many levels. First off, it shows us that Saul's entire family knew what God wanted. It wasn't just Saul who had been rebelling against the Lord, it was the entire family, with obviously the exception of Jonathan. Second, and I've seen this sometimes, obedience to God is never to be used as a bludgeon upon those who hurt you or whom you disagree with. Abner basically says, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm going to do what God says from now on. You're on your own. That's not a godly attitude. (laughs) That's not a godly attitude. That's not how you handle a disagreement. That's not how you handle someone's behavior that you don't like. Oh, really? That's what you want to do? Fine, I'm going to do what God says from now on. You're on your own. In John 14, 15, it tells us why we obey God. In John 14, 15, it says those famous words, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then, of course, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 How can you say, if a man say, I love God and hate hate his brother, he's a liar. For he that does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Abner can't claim to be some spiritual loyal man to God right now because he he doesn't care about Ishbosheth. And yet he's going to go through with it. 
He says, if God, if I fail, then God will punish me. So do whatever you want to me, Ishi. And you know what? Ishbosheth backs down. It says he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. The phrase there, could not, means he was not bold enough. He dared not. He did not have the capacity to return words to what Abner had said because he was terrified of him. Ishbosheth was never a great leader. He was not a man of great courage. He was the wrong man to lead Israel, but that, of course, does not make Abner's actions correct. But Abner's committed to his oath, so he doesn't waste any time moving forward with his plan. Verse 12, Abner reaches out to David with an offer of peace. It says, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, that's Ishbosheth's behalf, since the king did nothing to stop Abner, it looks like this war is finally going to come to an end. He said to David, whose is the land? Saying also, make your league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring about all Israel unto you. Whose is the land? To whom does the land belong is the question. And within the question, the unspoken answer is obvious to all of them, that the heart of the people are leaning toward David. And so he says, listen, make your league with me, make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring about all Israel unto you. Let's come to an official agreement, David, that makes everybody a winner here. No more war, no bloody succession. I'll pledge my loyalty to you, and I'll bring all the other tribes with me, and we can end this nonsense. It's a good offer. But David has heard offers like this from Saul's family before, hasn't he? Abner, Saul's uncle. I mean, this is not a a situation that David's not been in before. And none of those promises, those agreements stuck before. So David replies with a demand to prove their genuineness. Verse 13, and he, David, said, well, that's that's agreeable to me. I like this plan. I will make a league with you, but... (laughs) One thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face, except you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife, Michael, which I espoused to me for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. David says, We're not sitting down to hammer anything out until you honor your past agreement with me. And then we can start talking about new ones. David, if you remember, when he was still working for Saul, that he promised that whoever found, was it 100 foreskins or something like that? David doubled it up. I don't remember off the top of my head. But he said, whoever does this, he can have my daughter Michael to wife. And he did that hoping that David would end up dead because he knew David loved Michael. He knew Michael loved David. He knew he would jump at this and maybe he'd risk his life and end up dead. But David went above and beyond, slew twice as many as Saul required, and so Saul had to acquiesce and give Michael his daughter to David. But David hasn't seen Michael in over a decade. Saul took her away after David had to flee, had her marry another man. David has had at least six other wives at this point, and she's been married to a third man now during this entire time. Now, we know that they truly cared for one another when they initially got married. Whether David still cares at this point or this is just a test of Abner's genuineness, the Scripture doesn't tell us. What it does tell us, though, is that Ishbosheth agrees to his demands. 
And so verse 15 says, And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Faltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went, this is one of the saddest parts of Scripture, her husband went with her along weeping behind her to Bahurim. It's like, it's like a 60-mile like a, like a trip. And then Abner said unto him, Go, return, and he returned. This dude's crying his eyes out the entire time he travels with her until he gets to a place called Baharim. It's about a mile northeast of Jerusalem, about 10 miles from Hebron. In other words, this is as far as you go, buddy, because if you go any further, you're going to end up interfering with the meeting. And so Abner says, time to go home. Verse 17, you can all say your boo-hoos, we'll move on. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel I had this big, huge, long section talking about that verse, and, and I'm not going to. I don't know who this guy is. I, I'll make this comment. When you do stuff that God says you're not supposed to do, it causes pain. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. You know, it causes pain. Michael already had a husband. She didn't need a second or a third one. Verse 17, and Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. Before Abner met with David, he sent messengers to the leaders from each of the tribes to secure their loyalty to David, because it would look very bad if Abner showed up promising to bring the other tribes to David, but they all remained uncommitted. And he reminds them, he says, in times past, you, you, know, you sought for David to be king over you. The, the phrase there, in times past, it means both a long time ago and just the other day. While many Israelis loved Saul, many others thought David would have been a better king. And they thought that way back when Saul was still alive, and they've been thinking it during this two-year civil war. And so Abner tells them that now it was time to put their thoughts into action. Now then, do it, he says in verse 18. Why? Because the Lord has spoken about David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, that's how I'm going to rescue my people Israel, out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. He reminds them, you know what, we have a real enemy right now. And I, this was a mistake, the whole dividing the kingdom up, that was a mistake I made. So now let's fix it, and let's, let's, we all made this mistake, let's fix it, and let's start turning our arrows and our swords at the real enemy. To which, again, I would say how sad that Abner and all of these tribal leaders knew this, knew these words from God about David, but maintained a conflict with him. Listen, don't be stubborn and self-willed like these guys were. Saul may be dead, but people are living out his legacy. Don't be that. Now, most of these tribes, even if they were unenthusiastic about David, at this point it probably wouldn't be too hard to convince. The Philistines are living in their homes. Most of them have fled across the other side of Jordan. However, one tribe did require a personal visit from Abner, Abner's tribe, his own family. Verse 19, and Abner also spoke in the ears, so he was the messenger to them. He didn't send other messengers or communication to them. He spoke in the ears of Benjamin, and Abner went also to speak in the ears of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. He said, guys, this is what we need to do. I know Saul was our guy, but this is what we need to do. And the phrase, it seemed good, it means we want that too. 
And so having convinced Benjamin and the other tribes to pledge their loyalty to David, Abner finally arrives at Hebron with their commitments. Verse 20. So Abner came to David to Hebron and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. David makes a feast when they come into town, even though it's an enemy combatant at that point in time, because David never wanted this conflict. And he needed this to be a solid reunification, not a weak one. Treating Abner and the other men who came with him with honor would go a long way to mending fences. And from all the appearances here, verse 21, the conversation doesn't appear to last very long. Abner, and every time I read about him, he strikes me as a man who's straight to the point. David, everybody's on board. I'm good to go if you are. He says, I'll, and when David says, that's good enough for me, there's Michael. I, I realize you're genuine in this. And so he says, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go get the tribes. We're going to come, make you king, and we can move on. I imagine Abner being a warrior who hated the Philistines. He was probably ready to wet his sword once again on Philistine instead of fellow Israeli. He wanted all this past him at this point in time. And so David, the Bible tells us, he sent him away in peace. He went in peace. The word there, in peace, means without a fear in the world. Not as an enemy, but now as a fellow citizen. And thus, it looks like the civil war is finally at an end. But there's a reason the chapter starts off by saying the war was protracted. And that reason comes in verse 22, a man named Joab. We met Joab last week, right, in greater detail? Remember we talked about how he's not a winner? Yeah, we're going to find out why he's not a, not a winner here. He's not somebody. If, if your daughter comes home with Joab, you, you need to say no, okay? Joab is not the guy you want on your team because most of the time he's on your team, he's not on your team thinking he's on your team. See, it's one thing to be somebody who you say you're on their team, but you're not. You're really a backstabber. It's another thing to have a guy who thinks he's on your team, but he's really not. With all his heart, he's saying, I'm on your team, but he's really not. He's causing problems left and right because it's hard to get through to that guy because he thinks, I'm doing what's best. Well, verse 22 says, And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop. This is a a well-equipped and organized gang of thieves. And they brought in a great spoil with them. In other words, they they brought back lots of stuff to be returned to the original owners. This is Joab doing, you know, police work, peacekeeping work around the the area that David has control of. And he's rescued some people's stuff and he's brought it back. It's a wonderful victory. But it mentions here that Abner was not with David in Hebron at this point. He had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. So when Joab comes back, all of this stuff is a done deal. The treaty's a done deal. The agreement's a done deal. And so when Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. It's over. The the war's over, Joab. Joab missed the meeting because he was dealing with this other thing, but when he finds out that David has ended the war and he's, he's, he's left Abner, let him leave as an ally, this infuriated Joab. Verse 24, then Joab came to the king and he said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away and that he is quite gone? 
Don't you know that Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you do? What have you done? If what I've heard is true, David, you have just made a huge mistake. He says, behold, which means, come on, man, think. He came to you. Your enemy came to you. Our enemy came to you. This was an easy call to end the war. Should have just killed him. But instead, you sent him away. Now he's quite gone. The idea of sent away, it carries the idea of letting someone roam freely. You're letting this guy, your enemy, roam free? The guy who took all the tribes away from you? Not only did you blow an opportunity to end the war, but you've given me advantage of being able to move about freely to spy on you. He's going to stab you in the back, and you've already given him the knife. And yet, Joab's impassioned speech does not seem to move David. And so Joab decides to take matters into his own hand, verse 26. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David didn't know it. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly, means privately, and he smote him under the fifth rib that he died for the, here it tells us why, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Abner was sent messengers from Joab that said, you need to come back. You need to turn around. Abner at this point is at the well of Sirah. It's about a mile north of Hebron, so not far away. So it's likely that Joab arrived pretty soon after Abner left. And something the messengers said to Abner gave him the indication that something still needed to be worked out in Hebron with David. But when he gets there, Joab doesn't let him get farther than the gate. And the gates back then were not just doors. They were um, they were funnel grounds. They were kind of, this is where, if, you know, if somebody was trying to get into your city, um, this is where you kind of pin them down. And so when he gets there, he doesn't even let him in the city, but he pulls him aside into this kind of a death trap. And while they're there, like he's going to talk to him one-on-one, he just, you know, hey, Abner, we need a, you know, right up under the fifth rib. And he's dead. It's over. Pulls him aside to talk one-on-one and murders him. And it tells us why, for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. I mean, I'm sorry, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab's real motive was not David's safety or the kingdom's safety. It was revenge. Revenge. Joab's real problem with David wasn't that he could have ended the war. His anger at David is because He didn't fulfill his duty to take vengeance on a kinslayer. Revenge killings were the cultural norm in that part of the ancient world. It still is in some parts of that world. It's why Saul secured the promise he did from David, because he knew that that's the norm of how things go. When you're king, promise me you won't kill the rest of my family. It's why God gave cities of refuge in the cases of manslaughter situations, when we don't know if it's murder, we don't know if it's manslaughter. He sets up cities of refuge because everybody reverted to, you killed my brother, I got to kill you. You killed my cousin, I got to kill you. I'm duty bound. 
Never mind that Asahel chased after Abner to kill him first. Never mind that Abner warned Asahel to turn aside. You killed my brother? Well then, prepare to die. Joab had an overdeveloped sense of revenge. And when David finds out that Joab invalidated David's promise, David is so upset that he pronounces a curse upon his nephew and all of his descendants. <laughs> it says in verse 28, and after when David heard about it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner the son of Ner. I did not order this. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that has an issue, or that is a leper, or that leans on a staff, or that falls on the sword, or that lacks bread. Whoo! That's a pretty heavy curse. I hope all of your descendants, everyone who's related to you, has a horrible life. And by speaking such a heavy curse, David is making it clear that he will have no part in revenge killings and that he will not stand with a family member who does evil, but that his loyalty is to his promise and his commitment to the Lord. And this is one of the things that makes a person after God's heart. David purposed that he would not be like Saul, who regularly broke his commitments to the Lord. David would be a promise keeper, even, even if it put him at risk. He would honor his word. Now, verse 30 goes on to say, So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. So David, the reason he doesn't just curse Joab's descendants, but he curses Joab's father's descendants, so all of Joab's siblings, the reason he does that is because apparently Abishai played some part in the murder, even though the Bible doesn't tell us what that part was. I don't know if he ran interference so that Abner's men couldn't get to him before Joab did the deed. I don't know if he ended up being the one who didn't kept the information from getting to David. We don't know what it is, the part that he played, but he played some part that David curses him as well. Verse 31, I love this. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. No, you don't get to gloat and triumph. You don't get to find some satisfaction and some perverse sense of duty fulfilled. You're going to publicly mourn the, the, the loss of the man who killed your brother. That's what you're going to do. And then David himself followed the buyer. That was a very great honor, that David following the buyer, not walking in front, that he was deferring to Abner as someone greater than he, at least in that moment. That was incredibly counterculture. This man killed David's nephew. The way culture works there, it doesn't matter how it happened. You're supposed to hate this man. You're supposed to do everything in your power to kill him, to get vengeance. And David wants nothing, nothing to do with that. Verse 32, and they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and so all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner. It means he sang a dirge, and this is how the song went. I don't know how it went, like rhyme and stuff, but it said, died Abner as a fool dies, 
Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so did you fall. Short song. And all the people wept again over him. Died Abner as a fool dies, a stupid person dies. It's like the idea, he's saying, how did you die, this great man? You died like someone who, the road said, road ends, cliff ahead. You just were like, yeah, let's drive. Like someone who had no clue what was going on. David can't believe that such a renowned warrior, someone he'd fought beside many times, died so dishonorably. He wasn't even a prisoner of war going to his execution. He died like some novice who was attacked by a thug. Why is David so heartbroken? Well, you see, David knew that this would divide the kingdom even further. This wasn't how you reunited the 12 tribes. And it was wrong, so very wrong, no matter what Abner had done wrong himself. And so while David did not do this for show, it did show the people something. Look at verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. The word there, pleased, it means it was good, right, proper, beautiful in their eyes. As whatsoever the king did pleased all the people, just like all the other things that David did, that they thought, that's the way you do it. That's right. That's proper. You see, this was not the normal way people handled a kinslayer. But David's disobedience to God and disobedience to cult, they just knew that it was right that normal was wrong. <laughs> you know, in the New Testament, there's that interesting section where it mentions, I don't, I, think, I don't remember the exact city, but it mentions that Paul and his team, they went to the one city, and a group came afterwards from Thessalonica, and they said, these guys who turned the world upside down in Thessalonica, they're here too. No, 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 we're not turning the world upside down, we're turning it right side up. It's upside down. That's the problem. <laughs> it's not right side up. Normal isn't good. Normal's wrong. Now, being contrary, of course, just to be contrary, that's wrong too. But God's word supersedes every other reason to do something. Always. Always. And if God's word says X and everybody else is saying Y, then we go with X. Amen? Verse 38, it pleased them, verse 37, for all the people in all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. Verse 38, and the king said unto his servants, do you not know that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. David is intensely frustrated. His servants come to him because there's still business to do on this day. And David says, don't you realize what a mess we're in? This this has complicated things. This has made things worse. Don't you realize the significance of what has happened? And I am this day weak, even though I am king. The word there, weak, means to lack governing authority. Don't you understand that what just happened here weakened me? Joab defied my orders, my statement that Abner's an ally now. He defied that. He circumvented my will for peace and for unity. 
And yet David knows that if he executes or banishes Joab, well, that might divide the kingdom even more. He might have his whole family turn against him. He knew he was in a weak position, so he doesn't want to do business this day. He's just sitting there. He says, these sons, these men, these sons of Zariah, that's his sister. Sons of my sister, they're too hard for me. It means harsh, severe, brutal. David knew that there would be many who would laud Joab's actions as honorable, even required. And the truth is, technically, Abner wasn't in a city of refuge, so he was fair game. And so while David may be king, he knows his position isn't strong. He knows that Abner's murder, he knows his bloodthirsty nephews, that they're going to keep the nation weaker for a longer period. And this priority of personal vengeance above the well-being of God's people disgusted and it angered David. And so what he does in the end is he just makes his final appeal to the Lord. I can't do anything about this. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. He appeals to God to deal with them, deal with Joab, deal with Abishai. Lord, I don't know what to do. For God was the one that David had made all those promises too, wasn't it? When we say that David was a man after God's own heart because he was a promise keeper, it means David was like the Lord because the Lord is a promise keeper, right? I think of how many times I've given God plenty of reasons to break his promise to me. How many times that I have not kept up my part of the bargain And yet one of my favorite verses in the Scripture, it says, when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's who He is. That's why we sing it. Faithful you are. It's because it's who He is. He's always faithful. He always keeps His promises. So we, if we want to be after His heart, we need to be like Him, right? So let's be those who keep our promises too. Amen? Let's all stand. As the worship team panics because for the first time in 10 years I finished early. <laughs> let's pray. <laughs> Lord, what a contrast between Saul and David. We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to be like the culture just because they say, well, this is how it is. Lord, we want to be like you. And so, Lord, we direct our hearts towards you right now. And that you would give us such a clear image of how you're the one who keeps your promises. That you are faithful always. We think even of, Lord, how it says in your word that you were faithful to love all your disciples to the very end, including Judas. Lord, teach us to be like you, to keep our word, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Lord, to love even when we're not loved back, to do our part even if someone else isn't doing their part. Teach us to be promise keepers like you are, Lord. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.